Today, I'm so excited about having a conversation with an insider, the president of the Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker, about the state of the United States. Please join us for this discussion as we zero in on the question, is the United States still the land of the free and home of the brave? A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Let's talk about the state of the United States. Is the United States the home of the free and home of the brave? Is it still free? Uh, it is not free. It, uh, in fact, we had some of the worst lockdowns in the world, and we've not recovered from them yet. On March 13, 2020, the National Security Council was put in charge of our COVID response. And I do think that was a, a, a striking departure from everything that Americans stand for. Uh, the Bill of Rights became a moot. The courts didn't function. Uh, we weren't allowed to go to church. Uh, we couldn't. We even had internal travel restrictions. Like nothing that ever, like this, had ever happened in American history, where suddenly rights and liberties just didn't matter. And the extraordinary thing about that is that while all these controls seem to be gone, the locus of power has not shifted back to uh, a citizen-based uh, government again. Or the the administrative state is still solidly in charge. And they can do that to us again and much worse if they want to. And there's very little efforts underway to fix this problem. So Americans really do have a sense of the, having lost control of their country and lost control of their destiny. The old patriotic songs we used to sing about uh, home of the brave and the free and all that stuff it just don't seem to resonate anymore. And there's a lot of hopelessness in, in this country. It's a broken culture, a broken society with a broken political system. Wow. And, and we're headed straight to a recession right now. So uh, it's it's destined to get worse before it gets better. Well, that's a stunning summation. I think a lot of Canadians might be, uh, I'm not sure what to say, um, surprised maybe by your summation. Um, I know that the United States is, is our closest ally and, and friend, and in many ways we're very similar. But I think a lot of Canadians the last five years in particular have really uh, paid close attention to the political scene in the United States and the state of that country, uh, that great country. Um, and so before we kind of dive more into those all those areas that you've mentioned, Jeffrey, I did want to pause a little bit and say, look, the United States, if we look over its history, is really an incredible country. It's made, in many respects, a profound difference in their world. And so from your perspective, what, what has made the United States tick and made it so successful? It was uh, the idea of federalism and the U.S. Constitution that just guaranteed people rights, uh, free speech, uh, private property rights, uh, free enterprise, and the fact that we really have 50 you know, experiments in democracy running all the time. Uh, the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution reserves all rights to the states. And that system has served the country very well. I think as Lord Acton said, American federalism 
uh, what's called federalism, is the key contribution that the United States made to the whole world. It was like building in decentralism into into the fabric of, of government here. And, and it really did work. It, it, it kept conflicts at bay with the exception of the Civil War, which is a catastrophe uh, fought over slavery. But uh, beyond that, um, its federalism has worked out very, very well for the country. Uh, uh, everybody seems to agree that that was a brilliant system. Uh, but the centralization that we've seen pretty much, you know, continually since 9-11 in the 21st century has dramatically changed the, the legal structure of the United States. And, and during that time, you know, you've seen economic growth slow and cultural conflict rise. And, and then the U.S. became a, a global military empire when it was completely unnecessary. We could have pulled back on that after 1990. Instead, uh, we started involving ourselves in a series of wars, and that just keeps continuing. We've got a Defense Department that's, that's very much lobbying for more war and military contractors pushing for more war. Uh, it's it's become you know uh, the nightmare that Eisenhower laid out in his farewell address where he said, uh, "Beware of the military-industrial complex." Well, now the military-industrial complex is 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 driving the U.S. to really to to, to uh, a point where the empire is seems to be almost at an end. Uh, uh, we seem to be going the way of other great empires in history, whether it's the Aztecs or the Portuguese or the Spanish or or uh, the, the British. Wow. So, so that kind of summary, Jeffrey, would, you know, you, you have an incredible network. In many respects, you're, you're uh, an insider in, in so many both academic and um, government circles. Um, would you say that that's a kind of an emerging opinion or is it yeah. commonly held? How would you characterize this? It's commonly held. I mean, everybody sort of knows it's happening. The problem is that nobody's powerful enough to do anything about it. It's a real, it's a remarkable case study in, in, in the decline of a, of a great country. You know, it's, it's, wow. it's, it's not that one person's causing it to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ever, ever more Americans are looking for somebody to come along and save us, you know. Um, that's why the interest in politics is so intense right now. Mm-hmm. And and yet, you know, you hate to be in that situation as a country where you're just waiting for a political savior to arrive. Mm-hmm. But that's that that seems to be where where we are right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not I don't think that any one politician can somehow solve the problem, but, you know, maybe uh, can revive some hopes and then we can rebuild the country. I mean, it's not doomed yet. We're not really at that point, but mm-hmm. it does seem like. Like all the pieces are in place right now for uh, a real unfolding of a mess. And if the dollar really is unseated as the international reserve currency, it's going to change uh, a lot of things about about the way the U.S. conducts its business around the world and at home. Okay, so we want to get to a number of those components, including the state of the economy and, and certainly the whole reference to the dollar as well. Um, but I, I, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the response or what happened during COVID-19 in the United States, because, you know, the world really watched um, so many of those decisions that were unfolding um, week by week, if not day by day. And it's almost like that's a, is that a case study of a symptom of the decline of the United States? Or how do you, what the heck happened from your perspective as COVID-19 unfolded it, it's hard to believe it's some three years ago 
Yeah, we spent a lot of time at Brownstone just trying to figure this out as best we can tell. Uh, in 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 late January, uh, Anthony Fauci, together with uh, Jeremy Farrar in the UK from the Wellcome Trust, began to get worried that that a, 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 a lab that they were funding in Wuhan might have leaked a virus. Uh, and this, the, when I say they were funding it, they were using a third party called Eco Health Alliance. So Farrar and Fauci began to get worried that they were going to be uh, blamed for having started, you know, basically World War III, like if this was a bioweapon or perceived to be a bioweapon, um, it was a disaster. So they uh, put into place this sort of pandemic uh, uh, planning apparatus, contacting the FBI and so on, and, and you know, on the first week of February, and uh, thinking that, that this virus was probably going to be much worse than it ended up being. And they saw the response in China with the lockdowns and, and advocated those for the United States. Um, so that planning took place the whole month of February 2020. And then they just had to uh, uh, get uh, tr Trump to sign off on it. And they did that by going to him on March 10th uh, and saying, uh, Mr. President, this is much worse than you know. This could be a bioweapon for China. But the good news is that we sequenced it back in January. So we've got... Uh, we've got the, the antidote uh, in the form of vaccine, which we're going to probably uh, get by the summer, and then we'll distribute to everybody and everybody will be saved from this. So they tapped into sort of uh, Trump's, I would say, ignorance about cell biology. And and he, like many people have seen, you know, plenty of zombie apocalypse movies, you know, and pandemic movies. And huh. the idea that he was going to save, save the whole country from uh, a bad virus made in China with a with an American-made uh, vaccine, uh, just you know, it was too good to resist. So he gave the the green light on lockdowns, and at that moment, this would have been you know March, basically March tenth, twenty twenty. Three days later, well, two days later, we got the international travel restrictions, so you couldn't even travel uh, from Canada to the U.S. or anywhere in the world to the U.S. And then the next day, it was the national emergency was declared and the health, the Department of Health and Human Services transferred all rulemaking power to the National Security Council, which then turned it off, uh, turned it over to the Department of Defense and the Federal Emergency uh, uh, Management Administration. So we basically entered on into national law and martial law at that point. And Trump basically ceased to be president. And... Uh, he didn't know that, but he was pretty much a marionette on the stage for the rest of the year leading wow. up to the elections. Now, you've taken a lot of time to research this, Jeffrey. Like this is, you've gone through almost hour by hour the kind of documentation to essentially look back and see what happened. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's taken three years to, to be able to tell the story I just told. It was basically three years of research from a very large team. Wow. Um, and not everything can be uh, proven that I said. Uh, part of the reason is that once it, it becomes a national security matter, then you've got this cloak of secrecy that enters into everything. So, okay. so, so part of that story then, Jeffrey, is just to recap quickly then, the, the virus came out, so we knew pretty early on that it likely came from the Wuhan lab. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there's connections to the lab with the National Lab in Canada, in Winnipeg, of all places. And what's clear is that 
I guess the question is, was it deliberate or was it accidental or does it really matter? So this is where it gets really fuzzy. Uh, it's a consequence of gain-of-function research. The way gain-of-function research works is that uh, you've got epidemiologists and virologists and things trying to get ahead of the new uh, variant of, of viruses as a way of, of, of testing vaccines. So um, you create a new uh, virus and then you uh, sequence that virus and then you create a a shot that somehow mitigates against it. And it's a kind of a game they play in the name of uh, virus mitigation. Uh, the problem is that this, this, this gain of function research is, is bleeds over very seriously to the secretive area of bioweapons research. So they, they both go together. So you've got on one hand, you know, the claim that they're doing this research for purposes of public health. On the other hand, you have a great deal of interest in this kind of research for purposes of uh, uh, bio-warfare also. So, you know, either creating or anticipating the creation of a, of, of, of a pathogen <laughs> that some uh, hostile foreign power is going to make. So it becomes very dangerous. And um, I guess there's a consensus out there that the, that the leak in Wuhan was uh, uh, unintentional. But they didn't know that at the time. In fact, it, what's kind of interesting is that you had, on one hand, you had uh, Fauci and Farrar and public health officials denying that it was a lab leak uh, from 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 mm -hmm. first week of February 2020. Absolutely. On the other hand, believing that it was and telling Trump that it was. So you mm -hmm. had you know on, on, you had two uh, uh, stories you know uh, going at once. Now uh, the great mistake here. Is the belief that even if it came from a lab, even if it was created a lab, even if it was released deliberately, uh, was that it could that this new pathogen could somehow evade the natural built-in limits uh, on all sort of virus spread? You know, we've known for at least a century there's a sort of dynamic that takes place within viruses that the more severe they are, uh, the less they spread, and the more they spread, the less severe they are. So there's a kind of a trade-off uh, working there. And so they somehow believed that this one could be so bad that it was going to evade every known limit uh, mm -hmm. to, to virus spread, uh, that it could be both uh, highly transmissible and highly severe, uh, which is, we've never seen anything like that. So they, they, were, they were really making things up as they went along. And then I think even from Fauci's point of view, uh, once, uh, once the National Security Council was put in charge of the virus response, and you know, he called the called the FBI, and this whole kind of industry of, of pandemic planning got into gear. Uh, you know, nobody could control it. Uh, certainly not CDC and and Fauci. And Fauci was just found himself just sort of playing along uh, uh -huh. with everything as it went along, uh, just for purposes of of political damage control. Uh -huh. uh, and, and so it was, you know, a, a bureaucratic foul-up for the ages. I mean, dwarfing even World War One. It was, it was just a disaster. Even today, you can't find anybody who's willing to take responsibility for, for everything that happened. Uh, no, it's, it, it, it's truly stunning. It's, and it's almost like peeling a perennial onion. There's so many layers to this. So at one layer, the, um, the sense was that the virus was like out of a, a horror movie where yeah. it was going to be like the Spanish flu. But didn't we know, Jeffrey, fairly early on within um, a few months that the mortality rate was quite low and that it was really focused on the vulnerable, namely older people with a lot of health issues? Yeah. Is that not ac accurate? Uh, 
China was giving us a different impression of this virus than back in January. Uh, but by the middle of February, it was public knowledge that this thing was was uh, would, was highly trans transmissible, but not very severe. And mm -hmm. we knew the age gradient of death, and certainly from the Diamond Princess um, uh, cruise liner, we knew exactly uh, what it was. And nothing's changed about that. The average age of death from COVID uh, is uh, uh, is is higher than the life expectancy, and typically with two or three comorbidities. So, so they feared a pandemic. They they developed a pandemic response. Then they had to create one. And, and they did it through uh, a series of tools, uh, things like uh, the PCR test, which was used in Canada and the U.S. and all over mm -hmm. the world, which detects the presence of a virus, but it doesn't protect, but doesn't, it doesn't detect uh, actual sickness. In other words, it, 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 it finds um, what we used to call in, uh, uh, infections, but not cases. Right. Right. That was, that was, you know, mutated. There were some studies that were done even in March and, and April of 2020 showing that the, the false positives for these PCR tests approached 90%. And then, then you had the problem that, uh, one, you know, once, okay, so now we've got cases spreading all over the, what they call cases spreading all over the place. Now they had to produce deaths you know, too. And mm -hmm. so then you had this, this misclassification, you know, taking place. And and tremendous financial incentives for for hospitals and and doctors to uh, classify everything as COVID, you know. And so, and so what do you mean by that, uh, Jeffrey? Just to clarify um, uh, for the lay listener, like you you're saying, financial incentives to label a death as COVID related. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's you know, one of the problems is the U.S. shut down all of its hospital systems, so hospitals all over the country were bleeding money. Their parking lots were empty. Three hundred hospitals in this country furloughed nurses because they didn't have any patients. Most hospitals make money from elective surgeries; those were canceled, so they were bleeding financially. It was a, a disaster was unfolding. So uh, when the government came along with a rescue package, it said, you know, for everybody uh, uh, who dies of COVID. Uh, the hospital gets an extra seven thousand dollars from the government. Okay, so now you've got an incentive. So you know people die all the time, but if you can detect the presence of the virus uh, with a PCR test, then you can classify it as a COVID death. Mm -hmm. So to this day, we still really don't have any idea of how many people actually died of COVID. Um, it might be a really low number. Wow. We, we do know that uh, that millions of people were classified as having uh, died of COVID. I mean, there's no question there's a tremendous amount of death, but whether it was COVID that caused it is, is another question. I mean, the panic alone led to mass death, certainly in the Northeast of the United States from uh, April, from March and April mm -hmm. of 2020. In modern U.S. history, we've had, you know, three or four five uh, pretty severe pandemics in the course of the 20th century, and we never responded with anything like lockdowns. You know, the you know, first thing you do in the case of when people, when there's new pathogens out there, is you try to figure out how to get them well. Well, the U.S. didn't do that uh, because because there was so much pressure on the vaccine makers. Every Everything was designed to wait for the vaccine, wait for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Well, the vaccine didn't come out until the uh, second half of November 2020, and then it turned out the vaccine didn't work. So, you know, it's... it's just... and, and when you say the vaccine didn't work, do you mean in the sense that it did not prevent transmission or did it... Um, because I think a common perception is that the vaccines were, were somehow successful because yeah. 
they made your symptoms if you got sick less severe. Uh, that's what they say. But the, the problem is that uh, we knew pretty early on it doesn't it doesn't protect you from getting COVID. So so there was that, and then and that they last that whatever benefits that they have, you know, are are really short term. You know, we're talking about two or three months. So it doesn't protect against transmission, meaning that. Uh, there wasn't actually a public benefit uh, to the vaccines. There might have been a private benefit in some uh, rare cases where you get some protection for two or three months, two weeks following uh, the administration of the vaccine. Uh, but that protection is only relevant for those people who otherwise would have experienced uh, severe medical outcomes. So for the, for the <laughs> cohort of the population, which is something like 98%, uh, that did not have severe medical outcomes from from COVID, the vaccine you know proved uh, pointless altogether. Mm-hmm. Then you had the other problem that the vaccine uh, gave rise to uh, immune imprinting, meaning that it rewires your immune system to only resist that uh, one pathogen, one variant of a pathogen, but made you vulnerable to all these other kinds of uh, pathogens mm-hmm. that happen to be coming along, so including variants. Vaccines to this day have have significant impacts that we're still trying to assess. Yeah. Well, then the adverse impacts of, of the vaccines by themselves are far higher than any vaccine that's ever been on the market. So all these things kind of played together. Um, and, you know, I've run articles on Brownstone with people even questioning, you know, the, the claim that, that it, it was ultimately beneficial for even, you know, the most severe cases that lessened them. And the, the, the data is still not clear on that. All these studies I've seen that, that uh, claim that, that COVID, that the vaccine saved a lot of lives are based on modeling exercises with built-in parameters, not really uh, clinical trials mm-hmm. and not random control trials. Uh, they're, they're just purely modeling exercises designed to, mm-hmm. uh, to make it look as if we made the right decisions. But that's, it's, it's not clear that vaccines actually saved lives overall. And that might have led to um, excess mortality for one thing, um, the vaccines seem to, all the data we have suggests that uh, the, the more vaccinated the population is, the more susceptible it was to reinfection from new variants. So, so it actually had the opposite effect. So it, it seems like this has been a, a policy disaster in terms of the management of COVID-19. And, and one of the things that has always been a puzzle for me is that knowing a little bit about the drug approval process with the uh, Federal Drug Administration and, um, you know, Canada's often looked to that organization as kind of the gold standard in the world in terms of mm-hmm. drug approval. And it takes often years, um, five, 10 years often to get a, a drug approved. But we we didn't do that here. Um, we, we looked to the United States and the United States approved it so quickly. So what mm-hmm. the heck happened? Was it because they put it through a military process and not a civilian one. What yeah, happened? that's right. They they dispensed with all the normal trials you would have on a vaccine or any pharmaceutical, and and gave it a status what they call emergency use authorization, which is that mm. it's too important. We've just got to go ahead. And the belief was that uh, so there's one type of vaccine that got a privileged status over everything else, and it was this mRNA. Uh, platform, which they had been working on for 30 years. And the idea of mRNA is it, it works a little bit like uh, firmware on your computer. You know, you can just rewrite the code depending on the pathogens. Mm-hmm. They, that's why they're able to get it out so fast because they're using mRNA. But it's the first time mRNA has ever been tested on the population. 
So, so it's the first yeah. time that that yeah. new technology was used on a population. That's right. That's right. And the hope was that it was going to work so well that we'd be able to solve pandemics for everyone forever because we'd have such a good case, uh, uh, such a good demonstration of this beautiful new technology where the technology completely failed. <clears throat> so now there's a, a serious problem. Uh, and, and, and of course, all the companies that produce these mRNA vaccines for COVID were indemnified against any kind of damages. So they can't be sued, really. Um, and uh, as far as we know, they were pretty upfront in the trials, and we were going through all the trial documents. The adverse effects were just, you know, just off the charts for especially pregnant women and you know all sorts of uh, population cohorts. Myocarditis was already present in the trials, mm -hmm. but that didn't get any attention. All we got was the public uh, public claim that it was 95% effective, which doesn't mean really anything. It turns out you'd think it would mean something, but it doesn't actually. So um, it, it was a huge mess. And the the incredible thing about it is that, you know, you see very little talk about this. It's almost like it's mm -hmm. still a taboo uh, subject. Right. Even in the U.S. today. Yeah. And yet so much of this is um, discoverable through through careful research and, mm -hmm. and uh, even public record, but also through a lot of um, uh, conversation behind the scenes. Is that right, Jeffrey, in terms of your research? Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of people who know and pe plenty of people who are writing about it all the time, but <clears throat> it's being widely censored in the mainstream press. Uh, uh, and, well, and, uh, in part because, you know, the, vac the vaccine companies themselves uh, are, you know, highly lucrative and are, uh, uh, you know, uh, supported, provide supportive advertising for all the major media. So we've got a strange situation where we've got a taboo Everybody knows you're not supposed to talk about it, but everybody kind of knows about it. You know, it's mm -hmm. very strange. So in terms of the United States now, as we look at the management of COVID-19, um, we know now a lot of things um, that were asserted from the get-go that were clearly not accurate or, or correct anymore to this day. Um, there are assertions around mask wearing and the effectiveness of that to um, that vaccines were the only answer when, in fact, there were alternative therapies available. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you should really consult with your doctor, uh, but instead the state kind of intervened between that doctor-patient relationship. I mean, the list goes on and on. Even the whole narrative that, that we wouldn't really respect natural immunity for people with low risks here. Um, do, so what is your insight as to why so many of those narratives, those messages from government time and time again, including in Canada, were just entirely wrong. Like, how did that happen? <clears throat> well, one of the problems was that the emergency use authorization for the vaccines was only allowed on the condition that there were no alternatives available. So in order to get the EUA, uh, they had to deprecate and diminish the, the, the all-known fixes for these kinds of uh, mild respiratory infections. Sorry, can you repeat that again? So you, you had to go down a certain decision-making path to assume yeah. that there was no other treatment alternatives. That's right. So so because they had to assume there was no alternative treatment, suddenly there wasn't any alternative treatments. I mean, things oh, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were all taken off the market as early as uh, December and January. These are widely prescribed drugs for these kinds of infections widely used, and suddenly you couldn't find them. Uh, every alternative 
uh, to uh, vaccines was 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 hard to get. I mean, as incredible as that seems, and wow. this is just solely to comply with the terms of the uh, EUA. Jeffrey, I know that you have very much uh, not only an American perspective but an interna- international one as well. So, um, if I may ask you, what? Why did Canada, nations such as Canada, among so many others, go along with this kind of um, mimicking, in many ways, the U.S. reaction to COVID nineteen? Like, uh, yeah, that was, and I, I, I think you described it well. It was a mimicking of the U.S. I mean, once the U.S. did this, then it sent out the signal to states, statesmen all over the world: you should do this too. Mm-hmm. And that's a major reason why Latin America locked down and a major reason why Canada and then finally Britain locked down. Mm-hmm. Uh, really uh, just, a, just unbelievable calamity. Well, from my perspective, seeing Canada go this direction, for that matter, Australia and New Zealand too, a lot of the Commonwealth countries uh, did this, uh, was really disappointing because, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, Canada has typically avoided all the... Uh, the bouts of political hysteria that you see in the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Canada was was a great refuge for for people during the conscription years of the Vietnam War. That's a right. lot of Americans went went to Canada because so Canada had this reputation for for be, being a peaceful country mm-hmm. without a lot of weird frenzies uh, where you you, right. you had freedom and rights. I mean, sort of the the social the more welfare state policies and mm-hmm. you know socialized medicine, that sort of thing. But just generally, yeah, generally respecting people's rights. So to see Canada go this direction was was kind of devastating. And then Canada, uh, uh, you know, kept the lockdowns longer than the U.S. Mm-hmm. and and actually became you know, more extreme in its violation of civil liberties and civil rights and freedom of speech. And we saw what happened to the truckers. So, you know, uh, that was devastating, I, I think, for, for me and for, for many people. Americans look to Canada to be a normal country, mm-hmm. you know, a, a happy, peaceful place where everybody's nice and where weird things don't happen. You know, <laughs> that's, what, that's what Americans think of Canada. It's quite remarkable, uh, that perspective. So speaking of the, um, the trucker convoy, the freedom convoy, um, what kind of impact do you think that made in the United States and, and elsewhere? Well, it had a big impact on Canadian uh, uh, culture. I know this because all my Canadian friends tell me that that really did break the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though there's not been any admission that the, the truckers are right all along, mm-hmm. um, it, did, it did shatter the sense, you know, and they, they had a great deal of support despite what the polls said. There was a tremendous amount of support for the, for the truckers. And in the U.S., I mean, the, the truckers, you know, had a huge popularity here in the U.S. too. So it had a big impact. So in many ways, you know, the truckers just kind of, you know, sent up a, a, a warning to the whole English-speaking world that, you know, we're not going to put up with this stuff, that we're regular working men and women and, and you're taking our rights away mm-hmm. and we're not going to go along with it. That, that was a very important turning point, I would say. Um, for, for the U.S., uh, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. the, the truckers did attempt some rallies in the U.S., but uh, not as successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, partially, the reason for that is that there was so, the, the crackdown in Canada was so brutal, particularly the confiscation of assets and the freezing of bank accounts and that kind of stuff. A lot of, a lot of Americans just got scared. So, yeah. But I think, I think when the right. history is written, the Canadian, uh, the, the freedom 
the the freedom protests or the truckers in Canada really did kind of, it was a turning point, a real save. They were the saviors of the world. They took a lot of of, uh, risks, uh, but they did it for reasons of principle. It's really, truly inspiring. And and I think it's also kind of amazing because ironically, the the prime minister um, instituted these mandates on independent truckers, and there didn't seem to be any evidence or issues with health concerns with them. Uh, To this day, we can't find any. And clearly, in retrospect, it's very clear that there were communications showing that this was a kind of a cynical, dare I say, political wedge strategy to try to vilify a certain group of society um, so that you could then further position the prime minister and their government as being safeguards of of public health safety, when in fact, that's not what what it was about. It was a a political strategy. And I think that, you know, that that kind of... um, vilification of of that population was incredibly unjust and i think that's that was also another wake-up call i think for many canadians and people around the world quite quite frankly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i assume there's going to be some political fallout from this in fact we have we've only begun to see the political fallout i mean i I think trudeau is not as popular as he once was but it's more than that Canadians and Americans are deeply suspicious of the entire administrative state apparatus and what their plans are for us for, for the future. So uh, I, I think the political fallout from this thing is we're just beginning to see it. I mean, they're not going to make it go away. They can't yeah. make it go away. That's I was right. at a, a rally uh, yesterday for uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's thrown his hat into the presidential mm-hmm. uh, He's already polling at 14% among people who uh, voted for, for Biden. And Wow in uh, 2020 and his speech was very compelling the the, the there were 3000 people there and they couldn't have fit anybody in if they could have it would have been 10,000 or 20,000 people there it was very powerful and he's making the covid response really at the very center of his campaign and and, and 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 trying to bring back you know a sense of you know uh, old fashioned uh, you know 1950s 1960s style american patriotism mm-hmm. So there's a lot so of people. Robert that are not Kennedy banned. Jr., who's announced his presidential campaign just recently. Um, so you would see him as as um, an interesting candidate within the Democratic Party today when he's polling at you said 14. percent Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's just going to go uh, up from there. He's very articulate, and he's uh, he's he's seeking a vision that a lot of people uh, are, are really rallying around, which is to you know stand up to the bureaucracies, take back the country from the administrative apparatus, bring home the troops, uh, 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 start caring for the, for the middle class instead of uh, conducting these policies that not only benefit the very rich. It was a very compelling speech. It lasted nearly two hours. And uh, the whole room was <clears throat> electrified by his, by his presence. Isn't that uh, something? So, yeah, so you know, we, he could be leading a, a real revolution within the uh, Democrats too. I mean, the, we 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 tend to forget this, but average Democrats do not support what the Biden administration is doing. Sorry, can you repeat that? I think a lot of Canadians would be shocked to hear that. Yeah, <clears throat> the Democratic Party is very uh, diverse, and it doesn't just consist, as as Robert Kennedy said, of neoconservatives with with woke bobbleheads. That's why he put it yesterday. It was a hilarious <laughs> line. And most Democrats, you know, love their country and uh, support uh, uh, the working uh, working classes and poor and the middle classes, and just want 
their rights and freedoms back. So, um, you know, the, the RFK's entry into this into this race is enormously disruptive. I mean, he's the son of Robert Kennedy. He was shot yes. in 1968 and the nephew of John F. Kennedy, mm -hmm. who was shot in uh, 1963. So he's got, you know, a little bit, he's got the, the look and feel of a crown prince, really, in mm -hmm. a monarchical sense. Mm -hmm. And and um, he's he talks a very good game. I mean, he really is very impressive. And he says that his campaign is all about, you know, uh, the truth instead of the lies from the mainstream media and the government we've been getting for three years. So it's very compelling. And, uh, you know, I think we still have some semblance of democracy in this country, as far as I know. And his 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 uh, election could could really take off. Um, now, he's been attacked, you know, brutally by the mainstream press. But, you know, that same kind of thing played itself out in uh, 2016 with Trump and Trump won anyway. So... You know, if, could that same thing happen to the Democrats? I mean, maybe. We'll see. Very interesting. So one of the revelations that we found through this um, last few years has been the world of uh, censorship and the censorship mm -hmm. industrial complex, if you will. It's really quite stunning. So to cut to the chase, so Elon Musk purchase of Twitter and all the associated Twitter files. Did Elon Musk buy a crime scene? Uh, well, he what he found, he thought he was buying a business, and instead he found that it was a, a surveillance tool for the government. You know, he just couldn't believe it. So he ended up you know, firing 80%, four out of five employees. Isn't that are, remarkable? Are, are, just, are just gone from the place. And he's doing his best to turn it into a free speech platform. It's really the only mainstream social media that's not completely crawling with FBI agents at this point. Mm -hmm. So, no, it, you know, it, it, I think most people, um, I, in my anecdotal conversations with, with so many Canadians, I think many people are frankly not aware of this censorship reality that at the core yeah. of it, based again in the United States, you have most of the social media platforms deeply censored, uh, search yeah. platforms, everything. And then you have the mainstream media, which largely beams into Canada. So a lot of Canadians get a, a steady diet of mainstream media, let alone from their own media that has largely been funded by um, the federal government. You have a great deal of censorship and, and manipulation of virtually everything. It's, it's really quite stunning, isn't it? Uh, and, and Twitter is now the only mainstream platform that, that is not subject to that level of, of control. And I hope it lasts. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just, it's just, it's glorious actually to, to remember what it was like to be able to say something, you know, and not, not get censored for it. But that censorship is pervasive on every other platform, whether it's LinkedIn or, or Facebook or Instagram or any of the rest of them. Google is, is wholly uh, captured at this point. Yeah. So th this is a disaster for the, for the, for the, for big tech. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, we didn't know going into this whole thing, just how closely tied big tech was to big government and big media, you know, now we see them all as uh, united in, in a, in a, in a, in a pro censorship, you know, sort of uh, uh, propaganda uh, effort, just a big hegemon designed to control the public mind. Uh, I mean, will it work? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, 
but 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 we'll see. I mean, people are starting to get really educated about this now in ways they weren't three years ago. Mm-hmm. So just to recap there, Jeffrey, is that you've done a lot of research into this as, as others are rapidly, but the the infrastructure involved is, what is it, 18 um, military and industrial um, actors have, have really been censoring across this network. It's, it's really quite major yeah. in its scale and, and sophistication, uh, how sophisticated it really is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, free speech is really important to a functioning democracy. If they shut that down, everything else, all your rights and liberties are gone. So that's why the American framers put free speech as the very first amendment in the Bill of Rights. It's the most important thing. That's right. And we've got a lot of, 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 of litigation taking place right now. People are suing the government for, for what they've done over the last three years. And, uh, you know, we'll see if it's going to be successful, but it very well could be. And if that happens, that'd be great. My, my concern with these lawsuits, I'm really happy about them, is that they don't seem to be scaring uh, the government or the other social media platforms very much because they're continuing the same old practices that, mm-hmm. they, that they started three years ago. And those still persist today. Well, and, and this is what I was going to ask you about, Jeffrey, is that it seems like things are speeding up on the other side, instead Mm of backing away from um, more state control, they're increasing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of backing away and and kind of coming forward and saying, gosh, we're sorry about the mistakes about COVID-19. Gosh, we're we're sorry about um, all the censorship that we've employed from top to bottom. No, it's a doubling down of these efforts, isn't it? That's right. And, and, And the consequence is a mass loss of trust um, in, in all of our institutions. Uh, and this is going to con- continue until these people admit error, but they never will. So you've got right now a kind of an establishment in, in, all, in all countries, the U.S. and all Commonwealth countries, of, of a great deal of distrust uh, towards an establishment. They know it. So they're mm-hmm. getting scared, you know. They're they're afraid of of public anger at this point. So it gives them ever more reason to crack down. Mm-hmm. So we're really at a turning point. You know, we're 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 really at the point of. Uh, and I feel like I'm quoting RFK from a speech yesterday, but uh, you know, we have to decide. You know, what kind of people we are. Do we have rights and liberties and a normal functioning democracies, mm-hmm. or are we just going to plunge into this dystopian world of, of mass surveillance and and population controls in which. Uh, the the real rulers are not people you elect, but uh, but the very rich working with uh, deep state administrative bureaucrats to destroy any semblance of democracy, the rule of law. That seems to be what's going on. So this is the this is a real turning point for for all countries. I mean, we have to decide uh, like right away, or else it's going to be too late. No, I agree. So we really are at a turning point, a, a fork in the road, if you will in mm-hmm. terms of what kind of nations we're going to be in. And it really begs the question then, how do we renew our countries, um, keeping in mind those those kind of foundational assumptions that have made our country so successful, like the rule of law, for instance. It's, it's, it's yeah. truly remarkable. Well, and the part of the pathway is, you know, speaks to your comments earlier about the, about the truckers. You know, they, they, they were uh, passionate enough and naive enough to stick their necks out and stand up for for right and wrong for 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 truth, 
And uh, they were enormously successful by any standard. So, you know, you're going to have to have this more and more. These people just, just saying, look, um, I want to hand off my, the country of my birth to, to my children uh, that's still free and functioning and prosperous. Uh, and and if I if if and I in order to do that I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to take certain actions. Um, I'm going to have to really start caring about the future and be hopeful that something can change. Um, I see that there will there will come a tipping point uh, politically in both Canada and the U.S. and around the the, the entire West, uh, where we're going to have to stand up and say no to this, uh, to what's happening to us. Uh, if we don't do it now. Um, you know, uh, we're we're going to be we're going to be doomed, and and we see uh, the way the BRICS nations—that's you know B- Brazil and and uh, China and Saudi Arabia and um, uh, uh, and Russia—all kind of coalescing together to create uh, a, a real trade zone and to be and to sink really the U.S. and in Europe and, and Canada and, and Australia into uh, into oblivion and and that's really where we are right now and and for the first time uh, it seems like they can actually succeed so we've got to get our act together uh, like fast and the way to do it is it's not too complicated we just have to rally around the core principles that that have built these nations uh, into powerful functioning prosperous democracies in the past you know, the Constitution, the, the Bills of Rights, and the rights and liberties uh, that we've all taken for granted for so long until they decided to take them away from us. So I think you're right on, happened. Jeffrey. I think speaking of tipping points and or, or ways to rally uh, people together as citizens has to do also with things such as uh, the economy. Um, mm-hmm. So I did want to reflect with you just briefly on that a little bit because it is such a huge topic. But when you yeah. think of the impact that inflation is having on people's lives, it's decimating uh, many elements of the middle class. Um, It's disturbing. And and so you have this, um, I I think just last week you had polls in Canada released that some 60% of Canadians realize that the main culprit behind creating inflation is it's um, federal governments and other levels of government that are are spending too much money. Mm -hmm. They have a war on conventional fossil fuel industry Mm -hmm. uh, that is just driving their costs through the roof. And then you have this bizarre notion of monetary, sorry, pardon me, modern monetary theory where you Mm -hmm. have endless deficits and you can spend as much money as you want. So your your stake gets bigger and bigger. So you have Mm -hmm. this bizarre situation where you have a whole class of people that are insulated from the economy because they're on, you know, they're, they're employed to the state. And yet, working people are getting hammered by inflation. So is it the same thing in the United States where people are waking up to the rally that these people in charge aren't doing a good job? Uh, for the last 28 months, the dollar has declined in value very dramatically. We've lost about 16 cents uh, from the dollar as it stood in uh, January of 2020. So it's a very dramatic and painful inflation, which is a tax on the middle class and the poor. There was no way they couldn't have anticipated this. You know, uh, starting in March of 2020 and continuing all the way uh, to the same point uh, a year a year later, the Federal Reserve created about $6.3 trillion in new money. 
and that was to uh, buy the debt that was generated by the excess spending by by Congress, and that was fed uh, directly into uh, individual bank accounts, and then and then landed into the banking system, and that watered down the value of all the existing dollars. It's not a complicated story. Mm-hmm. And then the Federal Reserve panicked about that and started raising rates. Have had the, had the fastest increase in in interest rates uh, on record because they were starting at zero, and now they've got to get it higher than the existing inflation rates, which were at something like four point five percent right now. Inflation's still running hotter than that, mm-hmm. so they're not done yet. We're uh, real real uh, interest rates. And on the left side of the yield curve, we're still in negative territory. So uh, we're not done with this war on inflation. But that, those interest rate increases have had a devastating impact on uh, the banks because it de- devalued their existing mm-hmm. portfolios, which were mostly in the, held in the form of, of, of fixed rate bonds. Right. And so they were devalued. At the same time, the higher costs of servicing the debt, you know, they were rising for, for many industries and started pulling down more deeply on their cash balances. That led to a kind of... A, a banking crisis that the Federal Reserve uh, jumped in and the U.S. Treasury Department jumped in to bail out the banks. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, you know, we stopped that, that hemorrhage uh, about a month ago, but we're not done with the problem yet. And the inflation is still an issue. So they're going to have to still uh, increase rates. And and we're, we're seeing now a dramatic decline in, in M2, the mm-hmm. quantity of money dramatic decline as a result of the Federal Reserve selling off its own assets to rebalance its uh, balance sheet. Um, at the same time, uh, banks cannot find a market for their for their uh, excess cash that they developed over the pandemic uh, period, so their loans are declining. And all these forces are at work to, to cause the money supply to drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're at about a 5% drop right now. Um, we don't know uh, what the implications of that are going to be. We don't really have any experience with this. The last time the money supply dropped this much was between 1929 and 1932. That was a 15% drop and it led to the you know what we call the Great Depression. So we're at 5% right now. But in, in a quantitative sense, there's a much larger drop. So we don't know what the implications are going to be. The newest housing data came out showing huge declines in uh, uh, in new home purchases as a result of the higher interest rates. So it's impacting every aspect of economic life. Mm-hmm. Uh, producer prices came out last week that were uh, uh, dramatically lower than consumer prices. So you've got this this huge opening between the between the two. Producer prices are falling mm-hmm. at the same time consumer prices are, are rising. Now my read on the situation over the last three years is that we've got about a three or four month lag between mm-hmm. the two. And what that means is that um, the CPI could be uh, settling down a little bit more by, by the summer, but at the same token, there's every indication based on all the data I'm looking at that by the summer we're going to be solidly in recession at the same time. So mm-hmm. there's going to be an overlapping period where we're going to have both recession, yeah, very deep and noticeable uh, recession, along with persistent inflation in the consumer goods sector. So, uh, this, this is the term that economists use as stagflation. Is that correct? Yeah, Jeffrey? yeah. And, and that could that could last between uh, the summer and then uh, going into the winter of, mm-hmm. of this year. So uh, so hard times are coming, 
And and we don't. What's on the other side of that? We don't entirely know. How deep will the recession go? Um, how will they deal with it? Are they going to engage in another round of quantitative easing? Uh, we, we don't really know. It's, it's, it's pretty scary times. Uh, this is like error piled on error. You know, the mm -hmm. monetary policy during right. the COVID period is very much like it's, it's pandemic policy. It's just one mistake after another and every new action designed to correct for the previous mm -hmm. action, but then creating more reactions. And it's just this kind of the spiral is taking place. No, it, it is truly a um, kind of a slow train wreck. And, and you know, I, I would agree with your, your kind of economic summary. So we're kind of headed, and I think this is in Canada's case as well, we're headed, if we're not in a recession already, um, to a time where inflation will persist, but our economy will be slower. Mm -hmm. And so this is very concerning. But in this context, um, so many of us have a, uh, have a number of debates, and I'm curious whether this is the case in the United States as well, we're given these poor choices by decision makers. Um, how did we get into this situation? Is it because that the the state bureaucrats are in charge and, and will never back away from spending more money with with um, um, corrupt politicians of sorts who who always want to spend more money? I mean, we have a prime minister who's articulated the idea that um, the budget will balance itself. I mean, it's just totally absurd. So yeah. in this context, I guess my question is, is this deliberate or is this just incompetence? Because um, some cynically will say, well, this is all part of this um, bizarre sense of a global reset. And that's why this mm -hmm. is deliberate. Do you, where do you shake out uh, on that? I don't know. I don't know if it's deliberate or not certainly there are certain people out there that that claim oh this is all our, this everything's happening according to a plan right it looks yeah. to me like just pure chaos and also opportunism by yes. large yeah. corporations working with governments to kind of strip mine the entire middle class mm -hmm. what's happening they're just benefiting themselves and they don't right. care about the impact uh you know you think about something like during lockdowns the uh, uh online shopping industry just just you know, had a heyday. I mean, they were so happy because mm -hmm. they were able to drive out all their competition. Well, millions of small businesses in this country uh, and probably Canada too were, were utterly destroyed and didn't come back. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, the online shopping industry just thrived. Now, that's very cynical use of their political connections. But, you know, they were, they were happy to do it uh, just for the sake of uh, gaining an edge of their, their, their competition. Exactly. So these are very short-sighted policies because you, you can't live. Uh, like, no country can really thrive without a, small, a thriving small business sector. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody wants to live in that kind of dystopia. But that's right. exactly what, you know, they've, they've created. But yeah. All celebrated and defended by the media. Yes, right. And so you have these myriad of interests really pushing for their short-term interests. Uh, yeah. you, know, you think of big pharma selling an awful lot of product. Well, okay, is it is it really serving society? Right. Um, so, so the economy and all the associated pain with it, Jeffrey, could be a real wake-up call for society to say something mm -hmm. is wrong if they don't know that already. Uh, right. And now, uh, historically, when you enter into, you know, with a politically divided country and a shattered people uh, who are in very ill health as a result of lockdowns, uh, going into an economic uh, uh, inflationary depression at the same time, that usually doesn't end well, you know. 
So this is, this is the worry. So this Uh is why we need a really good leadership uh, right now. And we do have those people out there. I know Canada has uh, some good leaders, political leaders that are in the wings, you know, they're Mm -hmm. marginalized and attacked and denounced Mm -hmm. by the mainstream press, but they're good. And and the U S has several voices out there now with Ron DeSantis and uh, uh, RFK now, uh, but but it's it's not enough. It, but it's a start, and at least give some measure of hope. Indeed, it is. I, I think the other thing that that is um, fascinating to watch in the United States is also, if you think of triggers again, is the whole application of law these days. I think it's been stunning for many people to watch. I'm not sure to what degree Canadians recognize this, but it has to do with the rule of law and the weaponization of law, and I've seen this for for quite some time, is uh, the so-called area of lawfare, where you essentially use the law um, as a weapon uh, Mm -hmm. to essentially criminalize your opponent. So we think of Donald Trump, the former president, um, among so many other examples, it's really stunning the long list. But uh, is, is this now commonly um understood that i mean i've yet to see a legal analysis in the united states and i know that donald trump has all his stylistic challenges and communication um you know it it, he's he's kind of a mixed bag but in the case of donald trump's indictment by what is it the manhattan um attorney general there um it is it is utterly farcical it's 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 Mm. it's bizarre i can't find a single legal analysis that would support it and yet right. it's going ahead in some fashion. I know the other day it was batted down um, in, in some measure, but how do you see these things? And now we just have an IRS uh, internal revenue service whistleblower that just came forward saying um, there's a whole effort within the justice department not to prosecute um, a guy named Hunter Biden and the Biden family on all kinds of, of criminal activity. Yeah. How do you view this? Well, it's it's a tragedy for the United States because you know once a country loses uh, trust in its justice system, where it just becomes so heavily politicized that people mm-hmm. just become cynical, uh, you know, you're giving rise to what could just end up in just pure chaos. So uh, that's a problem that is is got a very long term fix, and I, I don't know entirely what it is. I mean, the courts are just so clogged up right now. With, mm-hmm. with litigation. This is going to go on for 10 years or 20 years as a mm-hmm. result of, of the last three. And, and, and the decisions that people are, the decisions that judges are making are entirely influenced by who's paying them or what their mm-hmm. political ideology is. So uh, uh, the, the enforcement of the rule of law has really slipped like dramatically. And, mm-hmm. and we've always believed that we had fair systems of justice. But when you see the former president being, you know, dragged before this this court in, in Manhattan over these ridiculous claims uh, mm-hmm. uh, that are just embarrassing that he violated campaign finance law by not reporting a transaction as a campaign finance law. There's the, as you say, there's no legal analysis that could justify this all. It's just pure political uh, persecution, mm-hmm. um, banana republic style stuff. Yeah, it, it really is tragic. So. On that note, I did want to uh, talk a little bit about um, elected elites, and I did want to get to a clip about um, uh, a, quite a, a, a prominent political figure named Hillary Clinton. And she just gave an interview recently uh, with a, uh, I believe it was a UK reporter. 
Next year, America goes to the polls. Donald Trump is running for president while under criminal mm -hmm. indictment. Mm -hmm. This the man who, back in 2016, mm -hmm. consistently accused you of law-breaking mm -hmm. and actively encouraged chance of lock her mm -hmm. up, directed at you. It's pretty ironic, isn't it, that he is now a former president that could face mm -hmm. a jail term. How does it make you feel? Well, I always thought about him, and if you follow him, uh, I think you can see it as well. He accuses people of doing things he himself is doing. It's a, a form of psychological projection. Uh, and I always thought that uh, his record in business in particular, but then as we saw him uh, in politics and government, uh, he was someone who cared nothing about rules, he cared nothing about the law. Uh, so he has been indicted, and there may be others as well, but he has said he's going to keep running, and mm. there's nothing in our current system of laws that would prevent him from running. But even if he gets the Republican nomination, he cannot, in my view, be re-elected uh, president. Why can't he be re-elected if I think he gets people, the nomination? I, I think people are... Uh, more people are on to him and his uh, behavior than they were before. He has a hard core of support that is likely to help him win the Republican nomination. But in a general election against President Biden, I do not believe he can win. So you don't think he can win? Do you think he's a bigger threat to Biden than DeSantis? It's hard to tell. I mean, DeSantis is unproven. Nobody really outside of Florida knows very much about him. And in Florida, they're watching him do crazy things. So mm -hmm. I, I, I actually believe that President Biden will be reelected, regardless of who the Republican nominee is. Do, do you ever worry that President Biden, he will be in his 80s in a second term, is too old for the job? I, I feel like I could do the job. I'm in, you know, you my mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, <laughs> you might know? could run in 2028. Well, I doubt that. So, Jeffrey, I found that interview uh, fascinating on so many levels, um, but one of which is, does that mean that uh, Hillary Clinton is signaling that she would like to run for president again, perhaps as we look at an aging uh, Joe Biden, um, yeah. possibly not continuing on? Yeah, there's a number of these Democrats that are just, you know, sort of uh, hoping that something goes wrong, that Biden's going to drop out and they'll just jump in. Um, her comments are, are very revealing and people need to listen to it very carefully. So what you get from that is the Democrats and by extension, the administrative state and the big media and big tech and everything desperately want Trump to win the Republican nomination. They want him to win that nomination because they believe and she says it, she said it like twice, you know, with great conviction, they believe that they can win against him. And they have good reason to believe that uh, based on his record in uh, 2020 and then uh, uh, 2018, 2020 and 2022, that he, he does not carry a, a majority of voters and cannot even uh, win the a plurality of what you need to, to and, and that he could be the hand that finally destroys the, the Republican Party, they believe this. So that's why they're, they're forever promoting his campaign with free media attention. And, and, uh, uh, and, and many people in the Republican Party are buying into it, you know. But this is, this is, the, this is the plan. Now, um, I don't believe that Biden's going to make it all the way to, uh, to the election. So other people are going to step up. So with RFK entering now, you know, he's getting well, Okay, so just to clarify, Jeffrey, why don't you think... President Biden will uh, run for a second term. Uh, 
Well, uh, because for, for health reasons, and his, his heart's not in it, and he's just not up to it. But they, they need Trump to get the nomination and then uh, and then have Biden pull out at the last second before the convention. And then what they want is somebody like Newsom or Hillary Clinton or somebody like that to sweep in. Okay, and, so Gavin uh, Newsom is the governor of uh, California. He's basically the, the, the Justin Trudeau of California. I mean, he's, he, does, he had you know, huge amounts of lockdowns mm-hmm. while singing the praises of freedom and, and rights and that sort of thing. I'm just like a man who's capable of saying anything mm-hmm. and is, is able to pretend as if reality doesn't exist, you know, that kind of political figure. And but he's very popular among the Democrats, so uh, it could be a um, Newsom Hillary Clinton ticket, mm-hmm. and they'll 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 hope that can that can beat a Trump ticket, you know, because that'll rally the Democrats, and and then they'll you know be in charge. And look, the scenario is not crazy. I mean, as terrifying as it sounds, it's not crazy. That's, well, that's it's, it's amazing. Your past predictions on many things, Jeffrey, have been remarkably um, accurate. So we'll have to see. But I think a port, an important point that you referenced was the state of the Democratic Party in the sense that it is very different than a Democratic Party that many Canadians would, would think of it as in the past, like the party of JFK as an example. Mm-hmm. So the party, as you described it, if I was listening carefully, you said is almost like an extension of the managerial state. What did you mean by that? Uh, the party elites, the Democratic National Committee, has been basically a marionette, uh, uh, just a cover for the public sector unions and the administrators of, of the government. And that's what it is at the top. Now, at uh, the grassroots, the Democrats still believe in things like freedom of speech and defending the working class interests and uh, in favor of you know spreading prosperity mm-hmm. to all classes and races and that sort of thing. But at the top, it's just become entirely captive of, of major corporations and, and technology companies mm-hmm. and big farm above uh, everything else. This makes a lot of Democrats really very uncomfortable. You know, you think during my lifetime, the Democratic Party has never been allied uh, so closely with big business. Mm-hmm. That's that's completely different from what it used to be. Another thing that's really affecting the Democrats right now is uh, uh, what's called woke uh, ideology. You know, mm-hmm. the the rallying around all these cultural uh, d- d- hot hot button issues like trans rights and mm-hmm. and uh, you know telling telling regular Americans that they can't be proud of American history that the founding fathers were all monsters. You know, all this kind of extreme left-wing uh, rhetoric that's mm-hmm. never been part of the Democratic Party. Uh, Democrats are the party of, of, of Clinton and, and Carter and JFK. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is, they're having this, this, this new perspective on life. It's, you know, woke ideology plus, you know, in favor of war with Russia, you know, alongside um, uh, this, uh, uh, extremist views on everything else, you know, like wanting to shut down fossil fuel industry. Well, mm-hmm. that'll, that'll destroy the poor in this country, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the middle class. And so a lot of Democrats are not willing to go along with this. Uh, so this is why this campaign by somebody like Robert Kennedy Jr. is potentially could be very uh, disruptive because mm-hmm. it taps into a deeper sense of who we are and 
what we're supposed to believe. And so the the Democrats could be the next party that would be disrupted in a, in a similar way to the way the Republicans were in 2016 when Trump came along mm-hmm. and, by, and basically wiped out uh, the, the Reaganite uh, uh, attitudes uh, of the past. He reshaped the party according to his image. It's very possible the same thing could happen to the Democrats if we still have democracy and if public opinion still matters. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so speaking of of influences within all parties, including the Republican and Democratic Party. I think there's been a lot of revelations as well, as is in Canada, about the influence of the uh, Chinese Communist Party within our societies. Um, In fact, right now, there's a lot of pressure on the uh, federal government to actually uh, do a proper public inquiry into the influence that Mm. the uh, Chinese Communist Party has had on a number of key um, federal elections. It's, it's mm-hmm. really quite significant. So mm-hmm. is that debate emerging as well in the United States? Because if um, you look at the amount of money the Chinese and influence they've had through um, all kinds of things, including TikTok, it's profound in the United States, is it not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the U.S. pursued the, the China-style CCP lockdowns, you know, uh, three years ago with, with COVID, and mm-hmm. the influence is very... You don't hear about it that much. Ron DeSantis talks about it to some extent. I think a lot of Republicans are very upset about it, but uh, the Democrats are just you know, turning the other direction, which is another difference between RFK and the regular Democrats. He's very concerned about CCP influence. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of the Canadian situation is it's much worse in Canada than it is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but you know, it's it's really very alarming. You know, just the extent of uh, CCP infiltration, uh, which goes to the highest levels, and it certainly went to the highest levels in the Trump administration. Or else they wouldn't have done what they did. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we don't we don't know how many agents of the CCP are are deeply embedded in all the bureaucracies, including at the National Security Council. It's it's tremendously uh, alarming. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's alarming as well. And the pattern of Chinese influences is not to um, pursue a kinetic or hot war. It's to pursue elite capture. Uh, why would you have a war when you could just simply corrupt them in, in so many ways? Um, from my own personal experience, I'll never forget a conversation with very senior people within the RCMP years ago saying that their biggest challenge is, um, is frankly, industrial espionage from from the CPC. So it was a real revelation for me. And I think it, it's something that we as um, both Canadians and Americans and, and really around the world should not be naive to. Um, so I did want to pick up the thread then, Jeffrey, as we kind of get into the home stretch here about this uh, long conversation about the state of the United States. Is the rise of the managerial class, the expert class that was in many respects in charge of so many of the last um, number of, of, of major decisions across uh, the United States. If you look at the management of COVID-19, among other things, is it, it almost seems like there's a, a, a significant reduction in the confidence, the lack of trust in, the, in that, that expert class. Would you agree? We have an administrative state in this in this country is is enormously powerful. Uh, there are about thirty or forty thousand people who've never been elected to any public office that are the experts in their particular realm. They're deeply embedded in all the some three hundred different agencies that are that are running the country, and then backed by an army of two to three million other employees that cannot be fired. 
that were not elected to their posts, but have enormous power over everybody's lives. And that's a, the fourth branch of government. You're not going to be able to find it in the U.S. Constitution. There's nothing about administrative apparatus, but they've, they've, they've made such inroads over mm -hmm. the decades, and particularly since, since uh, in the 21st century, that they're, they're, they're making the whole point of democracy kind of moot. I mean, the idea of democracy is that we control the, the government through our elected representatives. Well, if, if our elected representatives are completely outgunned and outclassed by and outsmarted by <clears throat> deeply embedded employees in all aspects of, of government, and they're making decisions about our lives, uh, you've, you've disabled the whole point of democracy. Mm -hmm. So this subject has to be taken on. And Americans, didn't, by the way, didn't even know that this was happening until very recently. Uh, it was the lockdowns that alerted us to the, who are these people telling me to put plexiglass up on, on my, uh, in, my, in my business? How, how come I can't go to church? Who are these people telling me I have to wear a mask, even though I know this, the whole thing is ridiculous and, and that, that we've never been able to successfully control a pandemic through mask wearing, you know? It, it, it just, it's alarming how much power that they ended up having. And we, we just didn't, we didn't know about it. And I hope, you know, with this, with this information, we're going to be able to engage in some kind of reform of the civil service. I mean, these people have to be, uh, you have to, you know, our elected leaders need a position to control them, at least fire them, mm -hmm. or at least be able to judge their performance and insist that they follow the law rather than making their own law. Indeed. Uh, this is a huge subject. So like uh, you, I'm a, a keen student of history. And I, I, during this time, like we've, we've examined so many areas around the state of the United States from media to censorship and freedom of speech rights, the economy and so forth. What the word tyranny comes to my mind. Um, mm -hmm. I think of John Locke's book, The Second Treaties on Government. And if memory serves me correctly, in, on uh, chapter 18, there's so many references around um, tyranny. Are we are we tilting towards, and I'm, I'm trying not to sound too dramatic or, or indeed mm -hmm. depressing, but are we tilting towards a tyranny, Jeffrey? Well, I don't know what other, other term to, to use. I mean, despotism, uh, uh, Le Leviathan by, by big tech, big media. You know, I mean, there's a lot of terms that you could throw out there, but mm -hmm. it's inconsistent, inconsistent with any traditional understanding of the word freedom. I mean, the John Locke's Second Treatise on Government is, is a great book, and everybody should read it. What you'll find in there is the first template for the uh, Declaration of, of Independence, where, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson and his colleagues uh, just said flat out, when a government doesn't serve the people's interests and they've sent, you know, swarms of bureaucrats to eat out our substance, we have the right to change that government, to abolish the existing structures and to put in place new ones that are consistent with God-given God rights. That's, that's what Thomas Jefferson wrote. Indeed, he, was, yes. he wrote that based entirely on his reading of, of John Locke's great book. So these are the kinds of books we need to revisit and 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 uh, and act on and believe in again. Indeed. So as we look to the future, as we look to renewing the myriad of institutions that need to be renewed, uh, that we've talked about, what are the recommendations for actions that we can all take, particularly citizens? Um, I, you know, I think the most important thing that that regular citizens need to do is to learn to. Uh, 
uh, take care of their own their own lives and their families and their communities first. That's more important than any political action. Getting involved uh, with uh, uh, your local merchants, uh, giving them your business, uh, you know, uh, uh, making friends at your houses of worship, really becoming very uh, active at the at the local level and talking to people, frankly and truthfully, about what's happening to this country. I mean, we've got a chance right now to maybe make a difference and stop this this inexorable uh, decline. But it's only going to happen uh, with people working together and talking to each other and having open uh, conversations, not isolated uh, uh, lives where you're sitting at home alone on your laptop all the time. You need to get out there, uh, support your local merchants, uh, 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 talk to people, and forget about these partisan divides of the past. Yes, we're always going to find points of disagreement, but surely... Uh, as, as people of the West, we can agree that we, the people, should be in charge of the government and not the reverse. And if we can just agree to that, we'll have taken huge steps to disable the Great Reset and to maybe give us hope for the future. Well said. Jeffrey Tucker, I'm so glad that you could join us and we could have this far-reaching discussion about the state of the United States. And thank you so much for your research and leadership in so many respects. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.